hope that doesn't offend you or hurt your feelings, but it's true. Jesus is for losers. And I throw myself in that category too. Uh, When I read the Gospels, that's what I see. The kind of people that are attracted to Jesus in the pages of Scripture are not those who have everything going for them. In fact, Jesus spends a lot of time showing those kinds of people where they're misguided. Those who feel like they have the world on a string don't seem to care too much for the one who holds the world in his hands. The people who have the world on a string are not the ones that are drawn to Jesus. It's the ones who are at the end of their rope. Those who are burdened, who are broken, those who have nothing left to give, those are the ones who are most attracted to Jesus. And so, Jesus is for losers. There are some exceptions, of course. Maybe that makes you feel a little better. You might be exceptional and not a loser. There are some exceptions, but those who are are outwardly successful, when they find Christ, it's really just because they they understand their inward failures. Jesus' teaching, in fact, tends to draw a sharp distinction between those who are humble and poor in spirit and those who are prideful and rich in self-righteousness. Jesus is constantly polarizing. Nate talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus doesn't pull any punches in his teaching. Uh, Consider the sharp lines he draws in some of these provocative statements by Jesus. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We talked about that parable a few weeks ago. Here's another polarizing statement by Jesus. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here's one that's very challenging. Jesus does not seem to be bothered by the fact that he's very often misunderstood. Listen to this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Over and over, Jesus draws hard lines. He's not interested in forming a fan club. He's pointing us to something much Much better. Today we continue our series, The Storyteller, Finding Ourselves in the Parables of Jesus. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up to Luke chapter 14, Luke 14. And throughout this series, we've explored different parables of Jesus. And we're going to look at one today that's known as the parable of the great banquet. And this parable teaches us about our priorities, teaches us about what we choose to value and what God wants to give us instead. The parable of the great banquet shows up in two of the Gospels. It appears in both Matthew and Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke's account this morning. And as you're turning to it, Luke 14, let me share what happens right before this. Right before this account in Luke, there's a somewhat hostile, somewhat passive-aggressive encounter between Jesus and some Pharisees. So Jesus is dining with these experts, these experts in God's law. And he asks them what seems like a simple question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Seems like a very straightforward question, yes or no. But they don't reply. Now they don't reply, not because they don't know, but they don't want to admit. They they can't bring themselves to admit that Jesus is right. It's lawful to heal anytime. 
You may remember the law is really designed to reveal God to us, to reveal God's values and his character. And, and healing is certainly something that God desires. But these experts, they don't answer. So Jesus answers for them. Jesus heals the sick man right there on the spot. And then in light of that, he asks them again. He's not going to let them off the hook. He asks, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull it out? He makes it personal, if one of you. And the way that Jesus asks the question uh, tells us the answer, of course you would. And I share this story with you because there's a connection between this incident and the parable that follows. Jesus heals this man, gives him rest for the first time in a long time, maybe the first time in his whole life. He chooses to prioritize this person over everything else, even over other good things. This, this healing right in front of the Pharisees tells us, it, it's, a, it's an illustration of what Jesus is about to, to teach in the parable. He shows them and then he tells them that pursuing God's kingdom might be harder than anything else we ever do, but it's more valuable than anything else we have. Let me say that again. Pursuing God's kingdom might be harder than anything else we do, but it's more valuable than anything else we have. Jesus uses this this real-life encounter, this real-life moment to lead into the parable. And so right after this healing, Jesus begins to teach them. Look with me at Luke 14, starting in verse 12. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus begins the parable. Jesus replied, verse 16, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So the setting of this parable is a great banquet. It's actually a wedding feast. You can see that in Matthew's account of the parable. And, and the tradition of the time was for there to be about a year between the, the announcement of the wedding and the actual wedding celebration. You see that same delay in the birth story of Jesus where Mary and Joseph are pledged to be married, but then they wait for a time and that's when Mary gets pregnant through the Holy Spirit in that, in that waiting time. And so, so the point for this parable is that the guests knew that a banquet was coming. They'd already been to the engagement, they knew a party was coming. They had ample time to prepare, and yet all they do is prepare excuses. 
And there's three different excuses here. There's nothing particularly insightful about these excuses. They're just placeholders for any old excuse you or I might make. If you're of a certain age, you know that in the old days, if you wanted to get out of a social obligation, you had to have a good reason. You, yeah, you had to be able to offer a good excuse or at least make something up. You had to pretend to be busy with the previous engagement or you had to say, oh, I, I can't go out with you tonight. I have to wash my hair, right? Well, nowadays, times have changed. You don't need an excuse, really, especially if you're younger. You can just say no to invitations. Uh, You can even do it in a text message. You don't have to actually talk face-to-face with the person as you're rejecting their invitation. Or or you can not RSVP altogether. It's it's freeing, really, when you get right down to it. But, uh, But back in the day, when you got invited to something, you had to either have a good excuse or make one up. I can remember as a younger person... Practicing excuses, making them sound believable. You didn't want to hurt somebody's feelings, right? Well, here in this parable, there's very lame excuses. I mean, the first person, they simply valued their material possessions more than the kingdom of God. We would never do that, of course. Maybe we would, okay. This sermon's taking a turn here. Uh, another person has five yoke of oxen. One person can't work more than one yoke of oxen. So it tells us this person has a, a substantial business enterprise. They're letting their work and their status get in the way of an invitation to the kingdom. Now, the third excuse almost works. The, the law of Moses allowed a man to take a year off when he first got married so he could adjust to his new role as a husband. In fact, the, the Israeli army still does this. It's a requirement for Israeli men to serve in the armed forces, but you get a year off when you first get married. But in this parable, the man's really just placing his marriage over and above Christ and his kingdom, so the excuse still is not valid. None of them are. Now, of course, excuses never appear so lame to the person who's making them. We get obsessed with our business or our home or our family, and we justify ourselves, telling ourselves, man, these are good and valuable things, and therefore they're, they're reasonable trade-offs for the kingdom, for Christ. And our, our attitude, our excuses are nothing new. In fact, Jesus' own family did the same thing. They justified themselves in the same way that we do. As Jesus' ministry starts to really take off and he gains more and more critics, His mother and brothers come to get him. Mark 3 tells us this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. I love what Jared Wilson says about this moment. How blind do you have to be to be told by an angel that your son would be the Messiah and later worry that he's gotten too big for his britches? How blind do you have to be to grow up with Jesus, pick up somehow that he has committed no sins, and yet still not believe his claims? Somewhere along the way, the journey of Jesus' family had taken them from joy to fear. Giving Mary the benefit of the doubt, we can chalk up her concern to being protective. Perhaps she simply fears for Jesus' life, in which case she's being a good mom, but a bad Christian. Where Jesus goes, and what Jesus calls us to do as we follow him is very daunting. Uh, As we speak, my oldest daughter is in France. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know we commissioned her for gospel ministry there, and she's in France most of the summer doing ministry, and I'm passionate about ministry. I'm excited about missions. I think it's so admirable. I'm so glad that some people go to faraway places and share the gospel, do that kind of thing, but when it's your own child, it's, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit harder. 
Somebody gave us a book, very gracious gift, the book called Preparing to Be the Parent of a Missionary. What a uh, thoughtful gift. I was very moved to get it. I haven't read it. I don't plan to read it. I, I want my kids to love Jesus, but not so much that they go move to faraway places, right? I mean, we all have excuses, limitations on how far we'll go in following Jesus. So I can relate to Mary. All of us can relate to these people in this parable who make excuses. Following Jesus is hard. And the more we lean into it, the harder it gets. There's, there's forces at work against us, people at work against us, pushing back against the work of God. So we can relate to these people. It's very tempting just to make excuses. We get it. But let's also learn from and be inspired by Jesus' own resolve. Even though he knows what's coming to him, he knows he's going to be arrested and killed, Luke tells us as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Another translation tells us he turned his face to Jerusalem. He, he knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's only going to find death. That's what's coming to him there. But he resolutely goes there with laser focus, not being distracted by anything else. Because Jesus valued something more than even the good things of this world, including his family. He wanted the will of his heavenly Father to be done. Jesus is showing us in this parable that the kingdom must be sought first before fields and oxen, even wives, were considered to consider all things a loss for the sake of knowing him. Now, Jesus, he doesn't hate his family. He just loves the Father more, which is exactly what I want for my own children. And because he loves the Father more, he knows that the family that will endure is the family of God. And so this parable of the banquet, it's not about neglecting family or obligations of ordinary life. It's just about putting Christ above everything else. It's about identifying and crucifying our idols that stand in the way of that. It's about recognizing how much we need Jesus so that we value him above everything else. Whether those idols come from our family or somewhere else, it's about surrendering the excuses we make to make the kingdom of God our laser focus. And in the moment before this parable, Jesus heals this sick man. He has nothing to offer Jesus, no status of any kind, and he doesn't have any excuses. He is well aware of his need. He's a loser. The rest of us, we fool ourselves. We, we cling to resources or achievements or family, and we elevate those things beyond their true value. But this parable clarifies for us that Jesus and his kingdom must come first in our lives. Pursuing God's kingdom, it's harder than anything else we do, but it's more valuable than anything else that we have. So after all the invitations are rejected, finally the man giving the banquet orders that all the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame be brought into the feast. The kingdom is for such as these, for losers. And for these Pharisees listening, this would be shocking. Who would invite such people to a banquet? Why invite people to dinner who can't repay you? But for Jesus, this pictures the gospel perfectly. Because to treat anybody on the basis of what they can provide for you in return, that's not a relationship. That's just using people. It's objectification of people, treating them like a vending machine. I give this and I get that. 
The Pharisees were experts in this, abusing people in the guise of helping them, getting rich off people who are just trying to get closer to God. And we're all guilty of this, of using people. It's not just strangers we treat this way too. It's our own spouse, our own kids, our own church family. When we give and serve just for the gratitude we'll get in return, that's legalism. We're users. We're doing the bare minimum, focused on our own agenda. But the gospel... Gospel changes the way we think of people and the way we think of stuff. It refocuses us on what's really most important, putting Christ above everything else and then living like that. And maybe the best way to think about it is to use an analogy. Think about hiking, hiking on a narrow uh, ridge atop a mountain. We got a bunch of our uh, youth uh, and students out hiking, hopefully not in quite such a dangerous setting as this, but... But on both sides of this narrow path, there's danger. On one side, if you fall off, uh, you're falling into the trap of excuses. You focus on the wrong stuff. You do nothing to advance the kingdom. You're just trying to satisfy your own needs with the wrong things. Well, that's dangerous because Jesus tells us over and over the desire he has for us to follow him, to make that our priority. So that's one danger, not even realizing our need, just living on our own. But on the other side of this narrow ridge, if you fall too far the other way, you're running the risk of just obeying the rules, but without really acknowledging your own need, thinking that that rule following is all you need. It's just another form of trying to do things on your own. In practice, you're obeying God, but just like these Pharisees that Jesus addresses with this parable, you're missing a key part. You're missing what's at the heart of the gospel. The gospel, living out the gospel is that narrow ridge, following that ridge, staying on that path without falling on the side of legalism or the side of license. And it's hard. In fact, it's impossible. But that's why the gospel is such good news. It's good news because it tells us that what is impossible for us has been done by Christ. The gospel tells us there's a a, a middle way, a pathway that empowers us to obey, to follow Jesus, but that reminds us that we can't do it on our own. And this gospel, it's been called the middle way, that narrow ridge between strictly following the rules and, and disobeying completely, living for ourselves. So how does this middle way of the gospel show up in our lives? How does it show up in these areas of excuse, our resources, finding our identity in our work or our family, any of the other things we put in place of making Jesus our priority. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about going with someone for a mile. He says, if someone asks you to go one mile, how do you respond? Well, license, one side of the cliff, would just tell us to disobey the command altogether, just to run the other direction. Legalism, the other side, would tell us to do what was required, to go one mile. But the middle way of the gospel empowers us to do the minimum and more, a second mile, right? So making Jesus our priority is just taking second mile thinking and applying it to all aspects of our life. So when we think about our relationships, for example, the middle way empowers us there. If we simply followed the rules, we would treat other people fairly, we'd treat them kindly, we'd treat them well. A lot of people do that. But when you're empowered by the gospel, you go beyond. Husbands don't just avoid being mean to their wives. They cherish them, loving them sacrificially and selflessly. And wives don't just respect their husbands. 
They submit to them. We treat our friends and our family, our co-workers and neighbors the way that Jesus treats us. Because God didn't simply tolerate us. He, he lavished on us the riches of his grace in Christ. The gospel is not a bare minimum thing. It's second mile thinking. It works the same way with our resources, with our money. The Apostle Paul tells each of us to give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So the, the legalist thing to do would be to give. 10% sounds about right. Follow the law. The disobedient thing to do would be to not give at all. But the middle way of the gospel, it goes to the heart first and then to the wallet. How generous was God to us in Christ? As Tim Keller says, Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave what was needed for the joy set before him, even though it killed him. So the gospel provides grounds for sacrificial but joyful giving. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion. Give with joy according to how much gospel joy is in your own heart. It's second mile thinking. Over and over in every aspect of life, Jesus shows us this middle and better way. He tells us the law says, do not murder. I say, do not hate. The law says, do not commit adultery. I say, do not lust. If we want to just obey the law, one side of the cliff, then not killing or not committing adultery are certainly ways to obey. But if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to go the second mile, then we stop objectifying people made in the image of God in the depths of our heart. We stop turning them into objects of our lust or objects of our wrath. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, obeying the law would have us tolerate our enemies or or simply avoid them. But the middle way of the gospel teaches us to honor one another above yourselves because that's what Jesus did for us. He's not just met the requirements of the law, he's fulfilled it. He's not only justified us, he's sanctified and glorified us. He's not just forgiven us, he's united us to himself. He's not just given us life, but he's given us abundant life. It's second mile thinking in every way. So now we look at life not just making excuses for how to avoid the rules or simply follow the rules, But we walk that middle path of the gospel. Following Jesus becomes not a burden that we have to excuse ourselves from, finding other things to do with our life that are easier. But instead, following Jesus becomes a delight that we seek more and more of. We see other people not as projects to work on or as obstacles to avoid, but as opportunities, chances to let Jesus show up in our relationships. We see our our resources and our work as as tools that we can use to build the kingdom. It's it's second-mile thinking. And yet this is ultimately why Jesus is for losers. Because we, on our own, we're liabilities to Jesus and his mission. We're not assets. We're full of excuses, looking for any old thing we could put in the place of Christ and his kingdom. But God has chosen us. He's extended an invitation to us. As the father brings the poor and the lame and the crippled to the feast and it makes his gospel look very, very big. When we live out the gospel, he gets the glory and the credit and we get the joy of being part of the feast. 
In the Old Testament, God describes life in the kingdom with a wonderful word picture. He says, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. In other words, there's so much abundance, so much good The workers can't even keep up. New fruit keeps coming and coming. There's more than enough for everyone. So what do we do with this invitation, this invitation that God extends to each of us, even though we're losers? I want to suggest a couple of ways that we can respond. The first response is to repent, but not in the way we might think. We know about the evil in our hearts, even if we're too ashamed to share it with others, we know it ourselves. We know about our own selfishness and lust and greed. And most of us know that Jesus has forgiven us for that. Even when we practice greed and selfishness over and over again, Jesus forgives us. So we, we've repented of the, the badness that we all have in our hearts. But a big lesson of this parable is that just like these Pharisees, we need to repent of the goodness also. Because we've all made excuses and justified a bunch of good things as our main priority when one very great thing should be our priority. Like Paul, we have to consider even our goodness a loss for the sake of Christ. Jesus is for losers. Those who enter the kingdom understand that goodness and badness, they're just two edges of a narrow ridge. Just trying to follow the rules and justify ourselves with a good choice or simply disobeying, finding our identity and worth in something else. They're both dangers. The only safety is found in the middle way, that narrow ridge that is gospel living. I'm reminded of the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked to come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So our first response is repentance. Repenting not just of our bad sins, but even of our goodness. And a second way we respond is, is living out this middle way, living second mile thinking. I'd encourage you to pray for God to reveal opportunities to live this out in your life. And as you pray for these opportunities, Don't turn down invitations. Be ready to step into what God has for you. Don't make excuses. Make Christ and his kingdom work your top priority, even over the other good things in your life. Finally, let's not miss a key feature of this parable of the great banquet. It's about a banquet and a feast. God's not offering a little bag of airline peanuts in exchange for all the goodness of your life. That would certainly be worth making excuses to avoid. If the reward were less than the good things you got going, then by all means, make excuses. But let's not lose sight of the fact that God is holding out an invitation to something vastly more valuable. A few years ago, a friend invited me to a baseball game, and he had tickets not just to watch the game, but he had tickets to a, a special seating area. These tickets allowed you to watch the game for pretty good seats, but they also gave you access to a special all-you-can-eat area. So instead of paying 12 bucks to get a hot dog, you could go back as many times as you wanted and get as many hot dogs as you could cram down your throat. I mean, unlimited burgers, pretzels, peanuts, funnel cake. It was all there for the taking. It was glorious. 
Well, you and I have been given seats in the special all-you-can-enjoy section, so let's enjoy it. A couple of weeks ago, Nate reminded us that uh, God, through Christ, has bought for us not just forgiveness, not just getting back to the starting line, but he's also given us restoration, a, a deep relationship with God through Christ. He's given us a new identity, a new inheritance in the kingdom. He's given us an invitation to the most amazing feast imaginable, all you can enjoy. And he's given it all to losers like you and me. So let's not miss it. Let's not fall into the trap of just following the rules. Let's avoid the trap of disobedience and turning away. And let's run, let's sprint down the narrow path that is the gospel, down into the greatest celebration in the universe. Let's pray. God, our hearts are for you, bent towards you, and yet we know that we also fill ourselves up with unnecessary things, good things, and yet things that are not the main priority for us, Lord. And we want to be uh, ever mindful that you are worth more than anything else that we have, that, that following you is that pearl of great price, that treasure buried in a field that's worth selling everything, getting rid of everything to pursue you, God. And we want to live like that as individuals. We want to live like that as a, as a faith family and pray that you would guide us into deeper and deeper uh, love for you that results in deeper and deeper obedience to you, God. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue to worship, and as we do that, we get to uh, practice a little bit of